and hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. For our regular listeners, you're thinking, this isn't your Thursday studio, and you are right. We are doing a special thing today on this Thursday. I'm doing the show from our home studio uh, because of a weather threat that has not materialized, but earlier today, it looked like there was going to be a, a potential problem with tornadoes uh, in the Dallas area. So we're doing our show live, but we don't have our studio audience today. Uh, love having them and appreciate them and all the people who come. But I want to welcome you to America Can We Talk, one of our special Thursday shows. We have a wonderful guest lined up who's joining me in just a moment, also uh, remotely. And I want to introduce you briefly to this guest. His name is Brad Thayer. And um, I met him recently at a meeting of people who were gathering to talk about the threat, the national security threat essentially uh, posed to America by China and what wisdom there really is in how to proceed, how to counter China. And uh, he gave just extraordinarily eloquent remarks uh, on Friday evening at this event and again the next day. And I want to have him come and join us on our show to talk about China in a really a much more in-depth and substantive way. And that's one of the great blessings of our Thursday shows. We have a one-hour conversation uh, with one person who's a wonderful expert. Um, and before I bring him on, I'll quickly tell you about his background. Uh, his title, he's the Director of China Policy at the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., and you know, I'm sure you recognize that name, Center for Security Policy, was founded by Frank Gaffney, a longtime friend of ours and a friend of this show, been on many times, um, and he gathers just the most extraordinary experts to speak about the, the big issues uh, converging on national security uh, facing America today. So Brad Thayer is the Director of China Policy at the Center for Security Policy. He also received his Ph.D., the University of Chicago. Uh, he's a very widely published author, a serious academic, a student of China and the uh, ways in which China poses a threat to America, uh, specifically the history of Chinese and Western strategic thought, which is part of what we'll talk about today, how they think versus how we think. Uh, China's use of force, the origin, development, the rule of the Chinese Communist Party, um, the history of communism. I mean, he he's just hits uh, all these really deeply important issues. Uh, the author of many books, including recently co-authoring How China Sees the World, Han Centrism, and the Balance of Power in International Politics, also co-authored Understanding the China Threat. Uh, he's been an academic, he's a professor here in the great state of Texas at Baylor, and also he's just a, um, uh, just, just a um, academic and expert extraordinaire on China. So welcome to the show, Brad Thayer. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to join you today. So glad you're available. This is just going to be great. Now, when we have an in-studio audience, a lot of them are trying to raise their hand in the middle. So we just get to talk for an hour. It's really great. Um, and I just want to start with this. I remember when the idea was kind of in vogue, when uh, Nixon opened, or at least I remember studying this, when Nixon opened China, our relations to China, there emerged a kind of trendy thought, a popular thought among really State Department people and just people advising the president that what we had to do to help China emerge out of communism, emerge, the CCP was obviously in control, but to emerge out of um, the isolation China had and to help the people of China was to engage in, was to essentially engage with China. You've written briefly about this. You called it in one article, the engagement school. So a bit of a history lesson. Talk about that, please, if you would. What was the thinking in getting America to engage with China back in the Nixon and later era? Uh, well, certainly it was uh, Nixon saw China as a very important tool uh, to be used against the Soviet Union and kind of a classic balance of power politics 
as the Soviets had gotten a lot stronger, uh, Nixon, and, and wisely in this regard, turned to China to try to use a better relationship with China and the U.S. to check Soviet power. Uh, of course, um, with the Cold War, that made sense. When the Cold War ended, uh, we had, with the Clinton administration, at first, a very positive strategy where the Clinton-Gore administration was actually, for the first two years, pretty tough on China as a result of the massacre at Tiananmen Square in 1989 and subsequently. In fact, Clinton and Gore had run on one of their campaign themes was that the Bush administration, first Bush administration, uh, clearly in this instance, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, was coddling dictators from Baghdad to Beijing. Uh, you may remember that, uh, uh, that line. And so for the first two years of the Clinton administration, uh, they kept China really at arm's length. That changed in 95 when they ended the linking of most favored nation trade status uh, to Chinese human rights record. Uh, and so with that gone, China increasingly became woven into our economic ecosystem. And the logic, the thinking was uh, that China was an enormous market, so everyone was going to get rich uh, who could invest in it, and the Chinese would buy our products. And by engaging with China, there would be the possibility of reform. The Chinese Communist Party, it was often believed, really weren't communists. They were secretly capitalists. And increasing trade was going to bring about uh, really their moderation. Uh, and so the Clinton administration, after those first two years, was extremely supportive of what we now call the engagement school, which was to support China's rise, actually, to support their involvement and ultimately session to the World Trade Organization, which they did in 2001. Uh, and so we had just an incredible growth uh, of the Chinese economy and increasingly Western ties uh, to it and interests in it. And that, of course, is, was a disastrous policy, and we're in, encountering the problems with that today. That was a perfect ending because it segues to where we are now. You know, um, part of what you were, uh, when we um, spoke at this meeting a few months ago, uh, part of what the theme of it was, was that there needs to be a very concentrated effort by the American government, by financial sources or people in America to the term was to decouple from China. And and that I want to talk about that in just a moment. But when you were talking earlier about what occurred under the Clinton people and how they got around to uh, trying to engage China, one of the missions was, and I understood it was, as China sees how successful capitalism is and China sees how great it is a trade with America and how the people of China will become more and more familiar with us, uh, they will just kind of gradually want to throw off this concept of capitalism. They want to embrace freedom more. They want to be more like the West, but actually a result of America's uh, really focused trading with China and the uh, engagement with China, it actually emboldened the Chinese Communist Party. It didn't have the desired effect of having the Chinese uh, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, become more friendly to Western ideas. And the next thing I want to focus, ask you to focus briefly on is how did our American engagement policy actually strengthen the CCP? It, it strengthened the CCP because um, for two major reasons. One, politically. 
Deng Xiaoping, uh, the Chinese leader at the time of Tiananmen and into the 1990s, um, very famously was worried about the United States. His concern was with the end of the Cold War, the United States would just use military power to overthrow Saddam Hussein uh, in, or, or to, to fight the Gulf War. Uh, and and to, uh, the concern was to overthrow Saddam Hussein in, in 91. Deng was worried that the United States would turn on him uh, after Tiananmen. And so there was a great concern politically that there was going to be regime change in China backed by the United States. So what Dundee recognized, really, the fact that he was such a great strategist, he recognized that, well, the Soviets made a mistake. They stayed apart from the Western economic ecosystem. What China was going to do was enter the Western economic ecosystem, increasingly tie Wall Street, increasingly tie trade, increasingly uh, uh, tie uh, political connections uh, and money, uh, what we would say was corruption or elite capture, uh, with uh, China. And by having that political tool, uh, he was going to ensure the United States never acted against him. Secondly was the economic element, if you will. Wall Street heavily invested, of course, and many people got very rich investing in China and, and participating in it uh, in many different ways and allowing China to raise money, which we still do, uh, sadly, uh, on Wall Street. And so a lot of folks got rich, but it was a strategic idiocy. It was Americans' naivete and the recognition of the way we wanted the world to be rather than the way it was and a gross underestimation of the Chinese Communist Party and the threat that they pose. So Deng played us and he played us expertly. And he did that because he had a lot of support in the West. Um, he knew that if he could wave dollar signs in front of people, uh, a lot of folks were going to go along with it. And with Wall Street, of course, you brought other forms of political influence, given Wall Street's uh, 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 influence, of course, in Washington uh, and elsewhere. So here we are now we're in 2023. We had, at least during the term of President Trump's presidency, more firms speaking about, you know, China's been taking advantage of us. China's been, you know, uh, they have been stealing our trade secrets through our, all of our efforts to uh, trade with them, to engage with them economically, uh, we've actually resulted in weakening America and strengthening the CCP because through our trade uh, deals, they steal our copyrighted information. They, they uh, require the disclosure of so much information to them. And so he began to see this, he, Trump and others, spoke about the idea of our economic engagement with China as kind of dangerous, as hurting us, as and emboldening the CCP. I want to mention before I forget this one detail, because I've read you, uh, have written about numerous times, when we think in America of a business, we think of some business down the street or some other state, but it's a, it's a business. It's a private business. They're doing their thing, whatever they produce. But in China, there are laws that regulate businesses that are founded, that are in China, as well as those entities doing business with China. And there were three laws that were passed. I think it was like, 2017 or 2019, 2020, uh, which really kind of cemented the CCP's control over the businesses in China, as well as businesses doing business with businesses in China. And it, it helps you realize that they're not at all like American corporations. I'd love to have you just quickly tell what those laws are. Oh, well, certainly. Well, first of all, um, there is no independence from the Chinese Communist Party. If you're doing business, if you are a Chinese entity, 
you're bribing or you're, you're operating with the permission of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and there is no es escape from that. Uh, so any Chinese entity uh, has to abide by the dictates of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, what China did was formalize that relationship beginning in 2017 with the three laws that you identified uh, that focused on um, requiring any Chinese entity uh, to share information with the Chinese government, both in the cyber realm, in a physical realm, and then with respect to data storage uh, and, and some other aspects uh, of, of Chinese law. What that means in essence is, if you're doing business with a Chinese entity, such as TikTok uh, or um, Huawei or ZTE uh, or many of the other apps, and many apps we don't know are actually Chinese, but in fact they are or have some Chinese influence uh, or control, that entity if asked, has to share information with um, the Chinese government, the Chinese intelligence service. Uh, and so what that means is we don't have data protection. There are no privacy laws that are going to be respected by a Chinese entity. They can't do it by law. Uh, so any interaction with a Chinese entity in, in any form, so if you've got TikTok on your phone and the Chinese government wants access to your phone, uh, that entity, uh, by dance in that instance, the owner of, of TikTok, has to share it uh, uh, with him. So that's outrageous. It's a violation, of course, of our laws, uh, West uh, European laws, uh, as well as norms and business practices. So it's a very different approach to business. Uh, it is fundamentally conducting business in a totalitarian government, in a totalitarian regime, and there is no escape from that. Okay, so TikTok is a great example because everyone's heard of it. So TikTok is required by the Chinese uh, CCP, the Chinese um, Communist Party, to give any information related to its customers to the CCP if they ask. And so any information TikTok gathers from you, because you have TikTok on your phone, uh, is potentially available to and may already have been provided to the Chinese Communist government. I mean, it's just a... You know, in America, we fret. I mean, everyone frets about privacy, and I certainly have on the show lamented about loss of privacy. But this is state. This is you know that state compelled loss of privacy and, and a permanent setup. Uh, so, I mean, that that's a great one to know. And then the other thing that you've taught, written about a lot. Uh, I know I'm jumping around, but I want to make sure this is a really wonderful hour. I should tell our listeners, by the way, very quickly. Um, I went this morning to uh, the website for Center for Security Policy and just look, I put Brad Thayer's name in, his last name is T-H-A-Y-E-R. And when you do that, you get not just his resume, but a link to all the articles he's written. So I was speed reading because there are so many great articles there. And I wanna urge you to do that, to go to Center for Security Policy, um, or I think it's also Secure Freedom. Uh, is there other website, securefreedom.org? Uh, but Center for Security Policy has all these great articles connect, um, right below Brad Thayer's um, bio, and they really are just a wealth of information for someone trying to get up to speed on why so many Americans are concerned about China. I mean, they're, they're well-written, they're short, they usually have uh, just some really punchy points to take home. And I, I was just, it was a very fun and informative morning. So I appreciate all that you write. So back when we're talking about, so right now today, um, we have China mandating that businesses that do business uh, with anyone, businesses in China or businesses doing business with them, 
basically everything is getting swept up by the Chinese uh, CCP, the Chinese government. Um, I want to briefly just talk about how brutal that government is there, because you can see a lot of Americans saying, well, you know, we're capitalists, they're communists, what's the difference? Uh, and, you know, it's just all part of the modern world. And I'm, unfortunately, especially young people are not as turned off as they should be to socialism and Marxism and communism. But describe just briefly, if you will, I mean, I speak of the CCP as just an evil force in the world, contrasted with um, not, and I'm not speaking about the people, the, the uh, citizens of China, who themselves are victims of their government and have no way to get out. Can you just describe briefly the uh, depth of control and uh, brutality coming out of the CCP in today's world? Well, certainly. The legacy of the CCP is, is the most odious of any political party, of course, in history. It was um, the Chinese communists uh, have killed um, many scores of millions of their own citizens uh, in the course of their history in a civil war uh, and then in the Great Famine that existed really between late 58, 1959 and about 1961-62 where it is estimated, Frank Dick Cotter has done really great work on this. He's a, a, a Dutch scholar uh, who taught at Hong Kong, and he wrote Mao's Great Famine, which is just a great book if, you wanna, uh, if your audience wants to look into that in more detail. And what Frank identified was that about 42 million people died in that famine alone. Uh, there are estimates 20 million to 40 million. But if you can think about that, in about three or four years, in a famine that the Chinese Communist Party caused itself because of, of Mao's effort uh, to what generate what he called a great leap forward, which was a, just a disastrous policy. His effort was to create to uh, accelerate Chinese economic growth to catch up with Britain and then even the United States. And of course, it was a disaster. The Chinese economy fell apart and you had a man-made famine. So when we look at the Chinese Communist Party, they've killed scores of millions of their own people. Um, but it is a totalitarian political party that seeks to dominate uh, the rest of the world and to impose its ideology, its version of communism, not just on the Chinese people, as you well noted, uh, but also to reshape international politics to replace the United States as the dominant power in international politics and force everyone else uh, in uh, global politics uh, to abide by um, the world as they want to create it. So it's a, it, it is a malevolent force, the likes of which we really haven't seen. Um, and it is one which we helped to create. We saved in some respects because we let it into our economic ecosystem. We allow it to thrive. And so um, to some degree, uh, we're not responsible for its ideology, but we're s responsible for um, sustaining it. Uh, and this has to end. You cannot allow this malevolent force to continue in international politics. It's corrupting and it's defined no matter where the CCP shows up by exploitation of people and the environment, whether it's Africa or South America or Europe or in the United States, you find corruption and exploitation wherever it's present. That's a great summary. I will throw in also that there is now really worldwide understanding about the Chinese uh, system of enslaving some of its citizens, uh, the Muslim population, uh, Uyghur population, and uh, their 
just grotesque things, I guess I'm not gonna talk about today, but uh, there is not, there's no sense of basic human rights as you, we expect to find in America. And that is uh, current today, this, this enslavement of the Uyghur Muslim minority and uh, mistreating them in, in grotesque ways. So this is the kind of force they are and they really don't have any, uh, there's no accountability to the citizenry as there is in any country like America. Okay, so I wanna get around to this. So here we are in 2023 and uh, America has gone through this development of thought of how we interact with them. There is a, uh, in fact, I think you said it uh, more than once in some things uh, that we, you, you were writing about China, the idea that we're kind of in a cold war with China right now. And I think that, you know, during the time when Reagan was around, we were talking about the Cold War with Russia, people came to recognize it was a, it was a competition of developing military equipment and military superiority. And Reagan managed through encouraging um, our government to see the danger of Russia and its expansionism back in his time, that we have to develop our military and be strong. And, and we really kind of stood them down and ultimately, obviously, Russian communism collapsed, although where it really sits today is a whole other story. But back to China today. Uh, so in China today, we see that they are, as you alluded to, they are dedicated to become the world's single superpower. They declared in 2019, the people's war against America. They, they acknowledge they, the country of China, they view themselves to be at war with America. I think it, it's a political war, it's a financial war, but we don't see it exactly in America. So first of all, Describe, if you would, just the agenda of China. What is their picture of what they think they're going to do to the world? Oh, well, certainly what the Chinese Communist Party wants to do to the rest of the world is uh, subordinate. It wants to dominate it and control it and to have the rest of the world meet its needs, uh, its political needs, uh, its the economic needs of China, uh, and to ensure that the rest of the world recognizes its superiority. Uh, which is all of the major aims uh, of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And it's important to recognize, yes, uh, the People's War Declaration of 2019 was very important, but the Chinese Communist Party has been to, at war with the United States since they came to power in 1949. Um, they immediately uh, tried to uh, kick the Americans out of Korea, right? We fought a Korean war with China certainly with the North Koreans, but the North Koreans collapsed basically in 1950. For three years, we were fighting uh, the Chinese communists in Korea, and then again in Vietnam, where they were helping the North Vietnamese shoot down American aircraft and repair the roads, transportation networks. So we fought them. They were also key allies of the Khmer Rouge. Uh, the Khmer Rouge ran Cambodia in a genocidal and uh, uh, mind-bogglingly uh, uh, bizarre uh, a form of government between 1975 and 1979, when they killed about one out of every seven Cambodians oh my gosh. Uh, in a genocide. They were Chinese allies. Uh, so when we look at the Chinese Communist Party, we can see that they have a malevolent intent against us and they have had it since they came to power. We just haven't recognized it. Now, to a large degree, it didn't matter because in 1990, for example, China was about 1.6% of the world's gross domestic product. Now they're about 20%, okay? So China's gotten a lot more powerful and it's gotten a lot more powerful because we've helped it. We allowed it to become a lot more powerful and we funded it. Uh, by and large. So now that it's so powerful, its malevolent intent 
really matters uh, and it's directed against us and we're really feeling that acute pressure in a way we didn't in 1990 uh, because it just didn't have it, the, it, it had the evil intent but it didn't have the capabilities now it has that evil intent that hasn't changed uh, but it's got the capabilities to really hurt us so we need to address this immediately we should have done this a long time ago but it really is the top national security threat that we face and indeed the dispositive question of the 21st century is going to be whether freedom led by the United States is sustained or whether totalitarianism not under a Soviet guise obviously but under a Chinese uh, Chinese Communist Party totalitarian rule sets the rules uh, for the 21st century and that's an open question sadly um, uh, in terms of whether the U.S. Is, and its allies are going to triumph and freedom is going to have a rebirth, really a renaissance in the 21st century, or there is the dark shadow of totalitarianism over the 21st uh, century. Uh, so it's a, it's a key issue and it matters to everybody because uh, Trotsky had that great line, at least apocryphally, right? Uh, you may not be interested in war, but war may be interested in you. So you may not be interested in the Chinese Communist Party, but it's interested in you and it's coming after you and you're not going to be able to escape it. So well said. We'll quickly say for our radio listeners, thank you for listening on Brightian Radio. You're going to go off to a three minute break at 30 minutes past the hour. I'll be right here talking with our fabulous guest, Brad Thayer. Do not go away. At the end of the show, you can always go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. The entire interview will be posted. So you can see it then. But when you go off at your break at 3.30, do not go away. We'll be right here after your three minute break. So back to uh, Mr. Thayer. I'm just, I, I'm so impressed by all that you understand about China and the perspective you're, you're able to add. So we're uh, provide for everyone. So we're, China sees themselves in a war with us. If you ask the average person on the street, if, are we at war right now? Uh, most people would say, I don't think so. Um, and they would not think we're in any war at all. And so China is engaged in this war. And we've had this conversation in this show with uh, Gordon Chang and Frank Gaffney, other experts talking about the ways in which China fights that we don't see as war. There is economic warfare, it's propaganda warfare, it's infiltration of our schools and government. But I want to focus with you uh, economically. So Right now, there is an effort being uh, pushed, the idea that we should, in America, decide that we are going to stop economically engaging with China as one means of fighting back, both with respect to not having our companies uh, subject to those three Chinese laws you mentioned that basically they're hoovering up all this information, but also not be so economically engaged with China that we're actually enabling what they th their intentions. So. You know, I'd love to have you, and you can just maybe a longer answer, you go right ahead, but what is the way in which America currently, the, the problems we have, the way we're engaged economically with China, and how can we undo that? How can we unclasp the hold, essentially, that China has on our businesses in America? What do we have to do? Well, first of all, again, we're to blame for this because we created uh, the tight connection that exists. We willfully outsourced our industry to China. We willfully invested in China. We willfully allowed the Chinese Communist Party to raise money on Wall Street. We're funding the Chinese Communist Party. And um, government employees, the thrift savings plan are actually, some of those funds are invested in the Chinese Communist Party and the PLA. So it's a perverse and it's a, it's a singularly unique situation. Never before has one 
a great power funded the rise of the thriving. That has never happened before in international politics. And it's, again, a testimony to how the Chinese manipulated us and how we willingly went along with it. So with respect to the economic connections, uh, we have to end them. Uh, there's no reason that an American business should be invested in China at all. Um, we could be invested, we can essentially onshore again and have industry return to the United States or Indonesia or India or Vietnam. There are other places where goods uh, might be uh, uh, produced. Um, COVID uh, really demonstrated the danger of having the CCP create your penicillin or your personal protective equipment because they can cut you off. Uh, and that showed tremendous vulnerability and the need to have those critical uh, elements uh, made in the United States or in friendly uh, states. So trade is a key aspect of how we um, willingly hurt ourselves and we're really feeling the, the bite of the engagement policy that we pursued for decades. Finance is a key aspect of this, and this is one of their criti critical vulnerabilities. We fund the Chinese Communist Party by allowing it to raise money on our markets, on New York markets. We need to end that immediately. It should have never happened to begin with, and we need to end it immediately so that we're no longer, so China can no longer raise money uh, on US markets. US markets need to have an element of patriotism. They need to ensure that their capital goes to US firms or to firms and allied and uh, entities in allied states, uh, first and foremost, and that money should never go to China or Hong Kong. We need to recognize now that Hong Kong is in the grasp of the Chinese Communist Party. So often in financial markets, as you well know, there are distinctions between, well, there's China and then there's Hong Kong. No, uh, actually, sadly, for the people of Hong Kong, Xi Jinping crushed them. Uh, he brought them absolutely under their control, the, the control of the Chinese Communist Party, ending the agreement with the British uh, that allowed a two systems uh, type of operation, violating a treaty with Great Britain, which really shows you how much he values treaties. So we need to end investment. We need to cut off their capital uh, as well as uh, trade. And we need to go back to, as Marco Rubio very wisely has talked about, um, Senator, Republican Senator from Florida, has talked about uh, going back to linking most favored nation trade status, um, ending WTO uh, membership, and, and linking most favored nation trade status to a human rights record, uh, going back to the situation before Bill Clinton uh, changed that. So all of those are necessary steps, uh, important and necessary steps that we need uh, to do. In IT, we see another another wrinkle of this, another layer of the onion, where ZTE, Huawei, the, the physical equipment of 5G, and, and then obviously the next will be uh, 6G applications on your phone, uh, for example. We need to go and tear that out root and branch uh, so that there aren't Chinese, whether physical or whether, the, if you will, the software aspect of it, uh, they're not building our fifth generation uh, or a sixth generation, uh, essentially, uh, technologies. We need to strip all of our apps, all of our computers from those uh, Chinese um, uh, uh, applications. All of those need to be done. So the trade, 
investment, and then of course technology, right? If you will, the sinews that make possible the modern economy need to be addressed. Uh, Gordon, excuse me, go ahead. No, and, and it need, needs to be done immediately. There's also talk about the thrift savings plan, the, the larger notion of, uh, you know, you talk about China, China-based companies uh, being on our stock exchange, but we have pension funds in this country that are invested in Chinese-based companies. And that's a, can you talk specifically about that? Because that I think would surprise a lot of people. It, 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 it will surprise a lot of people and it, it really will um, strike them uh, as uh, I, I'm sure it'll strike them as, as what you should not do. It's, it's strategy 101 is you don't fund the rise of your enemy. And what are we doing? We're funding the rise of our enemy by allowing the thrift savings plan. Uh, the thrift savings plan is the federal government's employees' uh, investment. Uh, it's one of their um, uh, options for retirement. And so there are many essentially uh, vectors for that, but one of which run by Larry Fink and BlackRock uh, has among obviously um, the choices that government employees could make, and that would employ Department of Defense employees and, and employees in the intelligence community uh, uh, to invest uh, in China uh, and to allow our, if you will, money from service men and women who are tasked with defending American national security, their retirement savings are actually funding the rise of their enemy, the People's Liberation Army. Now that's never happened before. It should have never happened and it needs to end again immediately. You cannot fund the rise of your enemy. And uh, this increasingly is getting attention. Frank Gaffney has done great work on this in the Committee on Present Danger China and Roger Robinson. Uh, and some really good people have looked at this, and it's getting traction on, uh, on, on um, in Congress uh, as well, rightfully so. But it has to end. You cannot fund your enemy, uh, and that's what we've been doing, and we've been doing it for uh, a very long period of time, and uh, it has to it has to uh, end immediately. What's the what's your answer to the argument that people say, well? You know, yes, we don't want to exactly fund them, but you know, if we do all of this, really pull Chinese companies out of our stock markets, and we pull all investments out of companies, uh, retirement uh, pension benefits of all kinds of Chinese companies, that you really could trigger or make them mad at us. That you, that you may cause more tension. Why is that wrong? Well, it's wrong because they're determined to kill you. <laughs> yes. So yes. your enemy wants to kill you. Uh, he wants to destroy your society and replace you as the dominant state in international politics. So in every aspect of American influence and American society, uh, that is, you're, you're not, if you try to become isolationist or just end your alliances, you're not going to escape uh, their gaze. Uh, they're, they're still coming after you as they have been through chemical weapons, fentanyl, all of the many avenues they have into our society. So um, to that argument, it's it's a bizarre one uh, because your enemy is going to kill you. Uh, and if you continue to fund your enemy, he's only going to kill you faster. So well said. <laughs> uh, the, the response to it is you need to end it. You need to recognize that this is an enemy. It's an existential threat and to take it seriously. And this is the most 
this is the most serious thing in your life. Uh, it, it's you know it, not the other aspects. This is the external threat that we face. It's the threat of the 21st century. It's the threat of our age. Absolutely, it is. Okay, here's my problem. I have so many points I want to hit. And we only have an hour. I was going to say when we started, I need three hours, but we don't have that. So, I, I, and I'm I'm just saying to myself, I'm trying to cull through my little list, top bullet point list, and get down to what I want to make sure we hit. Um, at one point at this um, meeting I re made reference to a few months ago, uh, you were talking about what China, you know, the CCP has been emboldened by us, have been funded by us, and they're very repressive, and they're, they actually are openly saying, yes, we want to take down America, yes, we want to spread China to become the single world superpower. But you're also making reference to some signals that the CCP, CCP might be a little bit more vulnerable now than it has been in recent years. And I think in part that at that point, there were fairly widespread protests regarding uh, COVID and the tyranny, the way the government's treated the people. Do you still see CCP? In the, are they a little bit more vulnerable than they have been right now? Absolutely, they're vulnerable. Uh, they're vulnerable because they're illegitimate. They're an illegitimate political system. It's a Western ideology basically foisted on the Chinese people. Uh, it is, it's a Western knockoff. Marxism, Leninism, Maoism uh, essentially imprisons the Chinese people and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, knows they're illegitimate. They're, they're not a legitimate polity. They're not a legitimate political system. And so they're supremely vulnerable if we would only take advantage of their vulnerability. Uh, and act accordingly, of course, that would be a very significant advantage for us and what we need to uh, operate in, in terms of political warfare. We need to draw the, the, the competition, of course, as you, you mentioned earlier, takes place in many different venues. A, a Cold War, of course, takes place in obviously a military competition. There's a competition in the intelligence community, right, between our spies and their spies, spy versus spy type of activity. There's economic competition, of course, that we've discussed. There's technological competition. There is competition in space exploration, right? The Chinese are going to the moon. They want to go on to Mars. Uh, they want to dominate space. They want to dominate the Arctic and the Antarctic, as well as the deep sea, uh, every environment. In sports, there's competition, but also in politics and an ideology, uh, there's a war. Uh, going on, and that is who's going to set the rules and which ideology is better for the rest of the world? Is it going to be totalitarianism or is it going to be liberalism as advanced by, of course, uh, the United States? And that's a key competition uh, which is ongoing and where they're supremely vulnerable and we have tremendous strength. Uh, when you have to put totalitarianism up against um, uh, freedom, uh, up against uh, the freedom that we offer uh, in our society. It's quite clear. People do indeed vote with their feet, as the East Germans recognized, of course. <laughs> Migrants are trying to come to the United States. They're not trying to go to China. China wouldn't let them in in the first place. And then secondly... And they might kill them, yeah. <laughs> they, they would not like living in China, uh, uh, definitely. People vote with their feet. Uh, and the world knows it. Uh, and the Chinese Communist Party know it. So in the political realm, we need to take advantage of their vulnerabilities by drawing the distinction between the world that we offer. Our societies, Western societies, uh, are the best societies in international politics. They're the best societies that have existed for freedom, 
uh, for minorities, uh, for uh, populations, of course, as a whole, for wealth, uh, and for, if you will, a, a cultural identity, and for, if you will, security, safety. Uh, and again, this is why folks try to come uh, to, the, uh, to the West. China is the opposite of all of that. They seek to oppress, they seek to exploit. They're a malevolent force. Everyone knows it, the Chinese people know it, uh, the party itself knows it. And so we need to have those messages uh, in terms of um, the superiority of our political system and uh, the tyranny of theirs and to make sure that people recognize that from time and again. That's why it's very painful when the Biden administration or Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, of course, at Anchorage, when he first met his Chinese counterparts in 2001, in essence, used a lot of talking points of the Chinese Communist Party, talking about essentially the problems of American society, uh, the problems of the West. Now, no doubt we have problems, but that loses, I think, the tremendous, the, the, to, to emphasize problems against essentially the wealth and the panoply of the great strengths of Western civilization, of our societies, of our political ideology, sacrifices a very important weapon tool that we have in political warfare, which is um, they're infinitely worse in every respect. The West may have its failings, but China is infinitely worse again. So, um, and the West can reform itself. We went through civil rights movements, we created profoundly strong cultures of anti-racism in every Western society. China, the idea of a civil rights movement in China is unthinkable, right? The Chinese Communist Party would never allow it. The idea of a women's rights movement in China is unthinkable. The Chinese Communist Party would never allow it. So if you think about how the West has restructured, reformed its society, has corrected essentially problems that it had in the past, uh, that is a, that's uh, underscores our strengths uh, and the paramount superiority that we have over the Chinese Communist Party, which again is this uh, evil malevolent force that could never do uh, what uh, the, the West did. And again, people vote with their feet, right? Where are people seeking to come? Not to China, right? The, People left Afghanistan, not seek, China is a neighbor of Afghanistan, right? Afghan refugees did not seek to go to China. They sought to come uh, to the West, to the United States. Absolutely true. I've made this point many times about how no one jumps in a, a rickety raft off of Florida and tries to make their way to Cuba. They don't try to make their way to Venezuela, North Korea. Everyone wants freedom. It's inherent in the human spirit. Um, you made a great point about um, how when we are looking at American businesses and trying to pull them back from their uh, interaction with China, which ultimately will help uh, you know, help strengthen our businesses and will stop helping the Chinese Communist Party, that we have to think about strategy in America in terms of where we invest first, not just economics. And this one article you mentioned, and I was actually surprised to read it. Uh, you said the Biden administration has created a China House or the Office of China Coordination in the Department of State. And similarly, in the CIA, there has been a creation of the China Mission Center. So even within a, a very leftist administration in this country, these have been created. So do you feel some confidence that the left is actually a little bit waking up to the dangers of China or not really? 
Well, I, I, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So it's nice that they've created these centers. Um, and, and, and at least at, at first blush, that's important. But we need to see whether they have a real impact on the bureaucracy. Um, it's terribly difficult to change the US government from the engagement school, which has dominated it for decades. Uh, there's some good people trying to turn the rudder over. Uh, but there's a lot of resistance within the bureaucracy uh, still, uh, as well as in Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and elsewhere in the broader society. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, those are positive steps. Uh, but first of all, I think when we reflect on them, are they actually going to have an effect? And that remains to be seen. Secondly, uh, it's important to recognize that um, that wasn't done in DOD or that wasn't done at the National Security Council. That was done at the State Department. And there's an inertia, a heavy inertia at the, at the State Department. And then we still see the engagement school does seem to still be dominant in the Biden administration. Blinken wanted to go to Beijing, right, when the balloon basically punctured uh, his visit. Um, right. <laughs> They knew the balloon was coming, but they didn't say anything about it because they wanted our Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to go to Beijing and have a meeting uh, there. So uh, it was thankfully the good people of Montana who looked up and recorded it and documented it. Uh, so the engagement impetus uh, is still very powerful and remains so with the Biden administration. And then, of course, as you well know, there are strong concerns of the Biden family itself uh, has business dealings with China, uh, and that may cloud uh, the uh, policy of um, uh, of this administration with respect to um, uh, the Chinese Communist Party. So you know, it almost couldn't help but cloud the Biden administration's conduct. I mean, the, we don't have to go off on this today, but what people learned uh, about what money has flowed into the Biden family uh, through various connections in China, uh, Hunter, much of it came out through Hunter Biden's laptop. Yeah, there's a real concern that they don't have the, uh, the utter determination to free America and, and to help. Uh, the people of China by weakening the CCP when all that money is falling into. I want to ask you one quick thing. So um, Mike Gallagher, who is chairing the committee in Congress, he's chairing a committee uh, which the new Republican majority has put together, uh, the Committee on China. Um, you know, what should they, you, you wrote a lengthy piece, it was very good, but I mean, very quickly, what should Mike Gallagher try to do with that committee? What should he try to bring to the fore for the American people to understand? Yeah. Just one quick point on, on the stuff. The, uh, the Biden administration ended the China initiative, which was a Trump administration policy to uh, actively hunt Chinese spies and agents of influence. So you mentioned China. Uh, Biden has taken some half steps forward, but they've also taken a lot of steps back. Now, with respect to the Gallagher committee, well, that's a very important development made possible by, of course, uh, the Republicans uh, control of the House. And Gallagher, of course, in some respects, um, has got to, he's got a Herculean task. He's got to clean the Augean stables, right? He's got to muck out all of um, the detritus of decades. And he's got to go through our media. He's got to go through politics. He's got to go through finance. He's got to, in effort, you know, go through every aspect of Chinese influence uh, and um, the, uh, uh, 
direction of the Chinese Communist Party and what we need to do to stop it. So he's got a, a Herculean task. It's, it's monumental, but it's a very positive step forward. And it does have bipartisan support because we are still Americans and the Chinese Communist Party is not gonna make a distinction between an American progressive and American conservative, right? The, the loss of American power and the damage to American society is gonna affect both uh, without exception. Uh, so we're all in the same boat, at least in that respect. So Gallagher, by calling attention to it and by uh, trying to um, change Wall Street's behavior, Silicon Valley's behavior, media, academe, uh, journalism, foundations, think tanks. Uh, he can take many steps uh, to combat uh, the Chinese Communist Party's influence at home and abroad. The positive step. Yeah, I, I sure is. And the, uh, several of the committees newly created after Kevin McCarthy became speaker and the public majority are just doing great things to help bring stories to the fore and to let the American people have a window on things they don't ever hear about from media. I want to turn our quick attention very quickly to, so in this last couple of years, we've seen so much attention paid to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we're sending untold amounts of money, American money over and, and equipment over to the Ukraine to try to push back against Russia. And Russia has been kind of propped up as the biggest enemy America has, and we must be, and must defeat them. I am not bragging at Russia being, you know, uh, neutral. I understand they're also problematic, but we, because that has been propped up in the American mind as our single biggest enemy, it's hard for Americans to perceive the bigger danger China faces, especially because they're not invading anybody right now. And so you wrote about, it was really great. And I don't, I couldn't find the numbers quickly while I'm talking with you here, but we have sent, spent so much money uh, trying to help Ukraine defend against uh, Russia, but actually China, the military is bigger, their installations are bigger, their, their military forces are bigger, the money they spend. And China is just, you know, kind of uh, licking its chops, getting ready, it appears, to invade Taiwan. So I want to turn to Taiwan and say, are we doing enough to help Taiwan prevent against a Chinese invasion? Do we have enough interests on, that speak to the interests of American people to help Taiwan defend against China? Do we need to shift the money a little bit there to make sure we're, we're helping protect Taiwan? Uh, absolutely, we need to do more. Um, Russia, what's happening in Ukraine is a humanitarian disaster, uh, but Russia is only a great power because it's nuclear weapons capabilities. China is a superpower. It's about one-fifth of the global economy. It's got a lot of power. It's got a lot of nuclear weapons. It's making more. It's got a lot of conventional weapons. It's making more. Uh, the Secretary of the Navy just recently warned, of course, about the tremendous growth of the, of the Chinese Navy. Uh, they're going and advancing in every direction. Uh, Russia really is uh, just North Korea with nuclear weapons, as it's often said, right? Uh, they just don't have much might. Uh, they may be dangerous and they're capable of doing horrible things, but China has the ability to remake global politics and to knock us off our pedestal uh, if we're not careful. So they're different. It's apples and oranges. Uh, China is a much more significant threat than Russia is. The threat to Taiwan is the very real one. The Chinese want to control Taiwan. And they really want that economic might to boost their economy as well as to provide strategic advantages. Well, why does Taiwan matter to us? It matters first because of economic reasons. China makes computer chips. 
uh, excuse me, Taiwan makes computer chips. They make most of the world's computer chips. If China were to conquer Taiwan, we're going to be in a mess. We're going to be in big trouble uh, in terms of our IT industries and everything depends on them. And that's going to be a profound disruption to the global economy. Secondly, China is uh, Taiwan is a key military intelligence base and geostrategic position because of where it's located really between Japan to the north and the Philippines to the south offside of, of, of China's coast. So it's a really important, uh, if you will, um, bottleneck uh, uh, for, uh, for controlling and making sure China's Navy is not such a, a significant danger. If it's lost, then China has open access to the Pacific, which threatens us in Hawaii and Guam and threatens key allies like Australia and Japan. Thirdly, Taiwan is an illustration in the political realm of what China might have been. Taiwan yeah. is a democracy. It shows that democracy can be Chinese and it can be a tremendous success. So its existence is a direct threat to the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. So they want to kill it. Uh, they want it gone and they're determined to do so. Now, a lot of U.S. military officials recently have warned, hey, things are happening very quickly and they might happen um, very soon. So you had Admiral Davidson, uh, Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Today. You had uh, 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 Air Force General Mike Minahan warn that, well, China may aggress against Taiwan in 2024 or 2025 at the latest. So a lot of U.S. military leaders are saying uh, there's going to be a war over Taiwan uh, in the in the not too distant future, right? A year from now or this year or a year from now or, or two years from now. So we need to recognize Taiwan needs to be defended now. And that means we need to make sure it has the ca conventional capabilities to turn it into a porcupine so that China's deterred. And if that's not going to work, we need to work with the Japanese, the Australians, the Filipinos, others, NATO. There's no reason why NATO shouldn't be involved in, in Taiwan's defense or India. Uh, key partners as well as key allies like NATO in ensuring that China knows any effort to attack Taiwan is going to bring in the rest of the world uh, against it. And that's what we need to do immediately in the diplomatic realm and military realm to make sure that Taiwan uh, remains uh, secure. That was such a brilliant summary and it's such an important, you know, I, I told you before we came on today, I, I had pulled up maps and I didn't get a chance to send them to Emilio, but anyone listening, if you go look at a map, a, a global map and see why Taiwan is so strategic and why China is thinking, man, if I can just take down Taiwan, um, you know, in addition to the point you made about how Taiwan's kind of a shining example for the people of China to say, oh, wow, Chinese people can live in freedom and have a democracy, uh, which throws uh, into uh, harsher light the illegitimacy of the CCP and it's, and it's just pure evil that it is. Um, but it's also the your uh, description of what Taiwan produces and how life in America could change if China takes that over. I mean, all the pieces you we put together today 
China has a, an absolute agenda. They have decided they want to be the one world single uh, superpower. We help, and, and they are determined through, there's actually the other book we didn't mention, the one written by the two Chinese generals, I think in 1999 or so, which was talking about how, you know, we, China, can take down America without bombing them and, you know, without a, a, a kinetic war. We can just take them down by weakening in a whole variety of ways, and they are executing in that plan. So China's got this agenda. China is pretty overt about it right now, and they are, um, you know, they are working in various ways, sending, uh, trying to in infiltrate American society, academia, or, you know, the institutions of government. And we sit at such, you, you said it well earlier, we sit at such a crucial point in, in world history, because it's kind of a, it's freedom in America, or freedom in capitalism, freedom in, in Western civilization, or it's totalitarianism and communism. And it's a funny thing because um, I remember I mean, when I was growing up, the idea that um, after you know, hearing people talk about um, how we were the free world, the West was the free world, and and the communism were communists were actually the bad guys, the unfree world, what no one would want. But here we sit in 2023 uh, with in just this. Uh, in, in, imperative for the American people to appreciate the way our actions have strengthened China, strengthened the CCP, they are emboldened. And so if you, Brad Thayer, got to be president of the United States, or you got to tell, you know, the a, a president, here's what to do about, China. this is my wrap up question, but if you got to tell uh, the president of the United States, here's what we must do, all the following steps in order to counter this threat of China and reassert America as the preeminent superpower standing for freedom for everyone, what, what would you tell them? I know it's a big question, but what, what are the big pieces we have to do? And three things. First, China's an enemy and recognize it and, and, and be consistent in that message. It's not a strategic competitor. It's an enemy that wants to kill us. So we should have a U.S. president say so the way our president spoke of the Soviet Union. And as you mentioned, the Soviet threat, right? It was... Um, the Soviets were a military threat to us and they wanted to overthrow capitalism and our society. Second message is the CCP is illegitimate and tremendously vulnerable. These guys aren't 10 feet tall. We've helped them enormously. If we could cut off the financial aspect and if we could advance the political warfare, the ideological component, um, we can put them under tremendous strain because the Chinese people don't like them and they want to get rid of them. Uh, and it's only by resorting to their totalitarian coercive measures that they even stay in power. So we need to recognize that. Thirdly, be confident in victory. Freedom is superior to totalitarianism. We can win. We defeated the Soviet Union. We defeated the Nazis, the Italian fascists, and uh, Japanese militarists. Uh, we, can we can defeat the Chinese Communist Party with the help of the Chinese people, as well as uh, our allies and partners around the world, freedom-loving people uh, around the world. But we need a U.S. president. We need leadership who are going to say those things. We need leaders who will say they're our enemy, they can be defeated, and we're going to be confident in our victory and our application of our power, as well as our friends, again, partners around the world, uh, who are going to assist us and the most important partner the Chinese people who've suffered under this regime uh, for so long. Uh, and um, they, they know that they can do better and they deserve a far better government than what they have. 
Brad Thayer, this was a completely wonderful interview. I'm so grateful you're available today. I appreciate you coming on. Everything you said, I just, I'm going to go back and listen to this uh, interview again to catch many of some of the points you made, but thank you for being available. Uh, for our listeners for America Can We Talk, our guest next Thursday is Catherine Engelbrecht, the founder of True the Vote, uh, and she is doing more things than I can possibly summarize for you, but she is all about standing up for free elections and fair elections and exposing the corruption she and others have uncovered. So she's next week. And again, uh, Brad Thayer, thank you so much for joining us. To, for people to read your work, actually, you can just say the website name. It's to find it was, your work. Certainly. It was my pleasure uh, to join you. Uh, CenterForSecurityPolicy.org is the best place. Okay. Great website. I, I, it's a go-to website for me in the morning, thinking what I'm going to talk about in today's show uh, almost every day. And so um, love that website, love their work. And again, thank you, Brad Thayer. And thank you for everyone tuning in to America Can We Talk. I do this show, America Can We Talk, to speak up and stand up for America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear-